This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Good afternoon. It's Sunday, November 3rd, and you are listening to the College Football Daily, a 24-7 sports podcast dedicated to catching you up on and breaking down the day's college football news all within 15 minutes or fewer. On Sundays, the day's college football news is the games that just happened on Saturday, so normally Trey Scott joins me to unpack everything we just witnessed, but we've got Trey's voice on a pitch count this weekend, so joining me instead is 24-7 Sports National College Football writer Chris Hummer. Chris, I think we went into the weekend thinking that Georgia-Florida was probably going to be our headliner in terms of college football playoff takeaways. And I think this game certainly lived up to the expectation in that regard, did it not? Yeah, I think both teams played about as well as we expected. Obviously, uh, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party is always an interesting rivalry game with a split stadium and two teams that are generally evenly matched. I think this game had some added intrigue. Given the um, given the amount that Dan Mullen talked this off season, he had some uh, pretty unsubtle mm. trolling of Georgia. And uh, I thought Georgia, I know the final score shows seven points, but I thought Georgia largely controlled this game. And I think they've kind of course corrected in a narrative that have popped up the last few weeks about Georgia kind of being down this season. I thought Georgia looked largely dominant among both line of scrimmages, especially offensively. I think Jake Fromm played one of the better games of his career, given the defense and the circumstances. And I think going into the last month of the season, we have to look at Georgia in the same breath as we do Alabama or LSU or maybe just a slight step behind because Georgia's perfectly capable of contending for a college football playoff spot. Yeah, zero sacks allowed from that Georgia offensive line. And Jake Fromm was huge, 20 of 30, 290 yards, two touchdowns. And the Bulldogs were 12 of 18 on third down. A lot of those third down conversions plays where Jake Fromm just came up with a minor miracle to keep the drive alive. And defensively for Georgia, only 21 yards rushing allowed by the for the Florida offense. And hey, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Kyle Trask fan, but when you're going up against a defenses like Georgia's and your running game is only getting 21 yards, that's, that's, that's not a winning formula, I don't think. Um, and and yep. it's, it's worth pointing out about Jake Fromm that he threw 30 passes yesterday. Going into, the se- going into last week, he'd been 0-5 in his career in those situations. Mm, and, uh, yes. Yeah, so Jake Fromm, uh, one of the better quarterbacks we've seen this decade, finally uh, ended what's been an odd statistical streak for him. And uh, as you said, he went 10 of 13 on third down uh, Saturday, oh, wow. which is quite an impressive performance. Yeah, you know, a couple of weeks ago after the South Carolina loss, we're talking about, well, maybe, you know, maybe we were right about the Jake from game manager and maybe may, but I mean, I, I it, because the more the more he throws and along the lines of that stat you alluded to, the more he throws, the worse it seems to be for Georgia, but this was a game where he was able to carry them a little bit and going up against one of the tougher defenses they're likely to face all season. So, uh, Chris, you kind of touched on this earlier, 
But a question I had coming out of this one is, is what we should take away from this game, should it be that Georgia is the de facto best team in kind of a second tier division? Or it sounds like you think they're right there with the top dogs coming out of the SEC West and the Big Ten East. Yeah, I think I think it's more the second. I think when you're as talented as Georgia, and Georgia is the second or third most talented team in the country, uh, the 24-7 sports team talent composite has them listed third. They've brought in uh, three straight top three recruiting classes. When you have that kind of talent base and you have a junior quarterback like Jake Fromm, um, I expect you to be able to compete. And I think Georgia showed that ability yesterday. I still think the ceiling for Georgia is a little lower than LSU and Alabama, just specifically because they're not as explosive. But we've seen Georgia the last two seasons compete with Alabama snap for snap in really big situations. And I have no doubt if Georgia gets to Atlanta, which almost seems like a lock at this point, and they get there with one loss, that they're going to be able to play with uh, Alabama or LSU. Um, The defense is playing as well as it has in a long time. Georgia still doesn't generate a lot of pressure but they've got the athletes to kind of control people and that style. And they've got an offensive line that can play with anyone. So yeah, I, I think Georgia's capable of beating LSU or Alabama. I don't know if I'd put them right on that tier, but they're like only like one step below as opposed to three or four, like you would some of the other kind of second tier college football playoff contenders. Saturday was an absolutely massive day for the Pac-12 in their playoff hopes. Utah beats Washington 33-28, to and the difference here to me was quarterback play. Tyler Huntley has quietly emerged from, you know, kind of being a liability passing the ball a couple years ago to now he is fifth in the country in passer rating behind Jalen Hurts, Tua Tungabailoa, Joe Burrow, Justin Fields. Uh, Yesterday, he's 19 of 24 for 284 yards and a touchdown. And on the other side of the ball, Jacob Eason throws two interceptions, including a pick six uh, when Washington was up eighth. That was maybe kind of a turning point in that game. Chris, impressions uh, coming out of this one? Yeah, first of all, Jacob Eason continues to struggle in some of the bigger games that Washington's played uh, outside of Oregon. He's really... He really has had a tough time against some of the better Pac-12 teams, and uh, I think that might hurt his draft stock at the end of the season. But um, in terms of this year, I think we saw Utah win in sort of a different way yesterday than we have in the past, which speaks volumes about their ability to contend not only in the Pac-12, but to potentially challenge for a college football playoff spot. Tyler Huntley, as you pointed out, threw for nearly 300 yards. He was 9 of 24 passing, 11.8 yards an attempt, which is a huge number. And he did it on a day where Utah couldn't run the ball. It rushed for 2.6 yards per carry. Washington largely held star rusher Zach Moss in check. But Tyler Huntley made enough plays. And in the past, I don't think we've kind of seen that out of Utah. They've been a ball control offense, a complementary unit to the elite defense. Yesterday, against one of the Pac-12's better defenses in Washington, we saw Utah really kind of emerge a little bit as a team that can compete with people offensively. Um, I'm still not, Tyler Huntley's still not on the level of some of the other elite quarterbacks nationally. He's playing really well. He's playing really efficiently. I wouldn't put him up there. But like what we've seen from Utah, especially last week against Washington, is that they're capable of putting up points when it matters. And that's going to be huge when you talk about playing Oregon in the Pac-12 title game or when you talk about potentially playing in the college football playoff. It's a different style of winning from Utah. And that um, I think is really going to help their case when it comes uh, playoff time. Yeah, it looks like we might be on a collision course for a really interesting Pac-12 title game between Utah and Oregon that could end up having, you know, 
playoff implications if these two teams keep winning. Oregon got it done at USC 56 to 24. The Trojans were up 10 to nothing after the first quarter, but then it was 46 uh, I'm sorry. The the Trojans were up 10 to nothing after the first quarter, but thereafter it was 56 to 14 Ducks. So more great defense from Oregon in this one and Jawan Johnson just really really kind of giving Oregon a dynamic playmaker at wide receiver that they have not had in a while. He had three touchdowns in this one and is really looking like a nice option for Justin Herbert. Yeah, Jawan Johnson out of nowhere. He's been banged up for most of the season. Um, He had a really down junior season at Penn State a season ago. And uh, now that he's back healthy, he's a potential difference maker like he was for Penn State back in 2017, which seems like a really long time ago. And it's kind of crazy how quickly that game swung. Uh, Oregon was down 10 nothing, and like five minutes later, they were up 21-10. And at the start of the second half, they just buried USC, which I think says a lot about USC. Uh, but it also says quite a bit about Oregon. Um, Justin Herbert, when he's on, which he was in the second half yesterday, is among the best quarterbacks in the country. And that defense um, is getting significant contributions from a lot of young players, including the number one overall player in the 2019 class, Kalon Thibodeau. Uh, who had a sack yesterday. So Oregon, Oregon's looking dangerous. Mario Cristobal has built one of the best talent bases in the Pac-12 or on the West Coast in general. And what you're seeing is a program starting to put together a season that resembles its talent. And that could be a scary thing for the Pac-12, given that there's kind of a power vacuum there at the moment. Oregon is quite clearly the class of the North, and uh, it'll be a fun game with Utah and Oregon in Los Angeles if we get to that point with both teams uh, having one loss. So on the USC side of things, they are now 5-4 and four with three games left to go here. Still not bowl eligible. Um, good chance to get there. They're at Arizona State, at California, and against USC or UCLA. excuse me. But the fact that we're even having a bowl eligibility conversation going into mid-November with USC does not seem like great news for clay helton and his prospects of keeping his job does it no nowhere nowhere close i think clay helton if he had any designs on keeping his job needed to win yesterday against oregon uh had usc done that secure a top 10 victory against a really good team they would have still been in position to win the pac-12 south they would have still controlled their own destiny in the pac-12 they could have conceivably finished the season at nine and three with a little momentum going in the Pac-12 title game. At that point, if you're Clay Heldon, you could argue we've had a ton of injuries. 15 or so Trojans on scholarship were out Saturday. Starting a true freshman quarterback, you're down to a wide receiver playing running back. These are all things Clay Heldon could have argued with a little momentum. But for Clay Heldon to just go out there and have USC essentially collapse mid-game after a really strong start is kind of an indicament on what this program has been under his watch, which is fine, but USC, when you're as talented as they are, should never be just fine. I think with a new athletic director on hand, and this was this was the new athletic director's first impression of Clay Helton on the field, uh, this kind of collapse against Oregon, I think it just kind of, the writing's on the wall at this point in a lot of ways. Uh, we're talking more about who could coach at USC next than we are about this season. And while USC still isn't out of the Pac-12 South race, I think I think we all know it's about done over there in Los Angeles. Like Clay Heldon's a great guy, but 
like the seat must be scorching at this point. He's getting asked at his post game press conference about why he should stay at USC and why he should be given another chance. Like when that question is starting to come up in that situation, you're just not in great shape. Mm. Yeah. Um, let, let's move on to the Big 12, where it was a quieter weekend for the Big 12. A lot of a lot of teams on a bye after kind of a bloody weekend last week, but it was almost kind of a little bit of a disaster for the conference on uh, on Halloween. Baylor went down to the wire against West Virginia, but Baylor, the MacGyver of this uh, college football playoff race, pulls out another, another miracle, and uh, the Bears are still undefeated. Yeah, it's a, it's a good win for Baylor. I know people nationally probably see a a, essentially a three win West Virginia and think like Baylor just barely scraped by but West Virginia has been good this season they pushed Texas and Oklahoma for more than a half Um, they've been solid under Neil Brown and I actually think this game says a lot about Baylor given the way it ended Um, essentially Baylor was in a position where it could salt away the game or potentially punt the ball back to West Virginia with about two minutes left on third down and what they did instead was dial up a uh, deep pass down the left sideline on third and 17 charlie brewer threw a dime and taekwon thornton made a pretty miraculous catch to essentially give baylor the win um it was ballsy but i i think for baylor to have been turned around this way it took a lot of ballsy efforts from matt rule and his staff and it kind of uh signifies what baylor's become under um their regime and I don't know if Baylor's going to stay undefeated with Oklahoma and Texas coming up soon along with TCU, but I think this is a team that you have to take seriously for a New Year's Six berth, and crazier things have happened than uh, Baylor being in the college football playoff mix. I mean, it was only, what, five years ago when the Bears finished fifth in the college football playoff race, so this is not this is not unheard of by any means. So Baylor survived on Halloween, and it was a spooky night for other undefeated teams like Appalachian State. So you got to give Baylor credit for uh, kind of advancing. Yeah, App State goes down as does as does SMU, kind of ending the Group of Five chances at uh, you know. I mean, they weren't going to be in the college football playoff, but you know, it, it it at least ends us talking about that as a possibility. But um, so uh, yeah, for Baylor though. Upcoming at TCU, Oklahoma, and then Texas. Those are both uh, in Waco. But Baylor's used all of its buys, so the rubber's really going to meet the road here over the next few weeks. They do end with Kansas, but, I mean, split Oklahoma and Texas, and you're probably playing, you've got a very good chance of playing in the uh, Big 12 title game, which is a heck of a spot to be for this Baylor program, given everything that it's been through over the past several years. It's the NFL offseason, but on Pick 6, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, the football season never stops. Host Will Brinson, John Breach, and Tyler Sullivan are joined by analysts like Brady Quinn, Leslie Ducible, Katie Mox, and R.J. White to keep you in the loop on everything happening around the league. Whether it's free agents signing with new teams, the all-important NFL draft, or schedule release day, Pick 6 has you covered. As the face of the league changes with every team move and player pickup this spring, Pick 6 is a must Listen, download, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and anywhere podcasts are found. Chris, we should talk about FSU. I mean, the the on these Sunday podcasts, we're primarily focusing on teams kind of in the national title picture, or conference title picture. But 
I mean, so uh, by that description, Miami 27, FSU 10 would not typically make our rundown, but there's been a lot of reporting from our Knowles 24-7 site that FSU boosters are really kicking the tires on some alternatives to Willie Taggart and drumming up the money. So, I mean, (laughs) what do we make of where the Seminoles are at right now uh, entering the almost toward the end of the second year under Willie Taggart. Yeah, I our FSU site does a great job, obviously, and one of uh, their writers writes a column essentially dedicated to the question, is Florida State getting better this week? Uh, it's a column that usually has quite a bit of nuance. I learn a lot about Florida State every week I read it. And admittedly, Willie Taggart inherited a bit of a mess from Jimbo Fisher in a lot of ways, um, both from a recruiting standpoint and from a roster construction standpoint. But I think given the way that loss to Miami went on Saturday, um, a 17-point loss, you can pretty emphatically say that Florida State did not get better this week. And I could argue, given an entire offseason, an entire kind of second chance to change his body of work, Florida State hasn't gotten much better this season compared to where they were a year ago. The offensive line is still putrid. It gave up nine sacks. So Florida State, um, for perspective on that number, like 13 FBS teams hadn't given up nine sacks all season entering Saturday. Cam Akers, one of the most talented and dynamic running backs in the country, averaged under a yard per carry. Florida State had almost as many offensive penalty yards in the first half as it did actual yards. Like it's like those are all signs of football teams that are struggling to be well coached and. I'm not sure if Willie Taggart has improved the football team enough to have much of a justification at this point for arguing, or at least making a strong argument about keeping his job. Um, Obviously, I'm usually a proponent of coaches having at least three seasons. I don't think it's quite fair to judge them after two, but that was a that was a really bad loss for Willie Taggart last week, and I I talk I know some parents and the parents and people around the program like. It's not all roses and kind of uh, flowers at this situation at FSU. There are a lot of unhappy people. And part of that is some holdovers from the Jimbo Fisher era that aren't kind of buying in the way they should be. But also part of that's on the coaching staff. And it's just, it's not a good look so far for Willie Taggart this season. And I'm not sure how much coming back from a loss like that there's going to be. I know 17 points doesn't seem like a lot, but given that Miami and Florida State both entered the year at 4-4, and both teams that have struggled significantly, like Florida State should have played better and it just didn't. And I I don't know how... I don't think this is going to go particularly well for Willie Taggart over the next couple weeks. His name is obviously going to continue to be uh, kind of placed on the hot seat. And at a job like that, with boosters as active as Florida State has, it's just... uh, it's a place you've got to perform, and just thus far, Willie Taggart hasn't. Yeah, for whatever it's worth, year three has kind of been the year that Willie Taggart's programs have taken a step. That At least that's been the case at Western Kentucky and at USF. Obviously, he did not get to year three at Oregon. But pretty big game coming up this weekend. A trip to Boston College will probably decide whether Florida State ends up going bowling this year, unless they can really pull up a, a shocker against Florida in the final game of 
the season. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode of the College Football Daily. If you appreciate what we're doing, we ask that you do one thing this week to help spread the word about the show. Ideally, one of those things would be leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. For Chris Hummer, Trey Scott, and our producer, Tani Levitt, I'm Connor Tapp, and we'll see you on Monday for the next edition of the College Football Daily when Trey will be back with me previewing the Tuesday night debut of the Playoff Selection Committee's Top 25. It's the UEFA Champions League on Paramount+. Plus. Europe's top club soccer tournament. Champions versus champions. The best teams facing off in the knockout rounds. Magnificent! And it all takes place. While you're filling out financial reports at work. In the middle of your day. In the middle of your week. So use that second screen. Call in sick. Do whatever you gotta do to tune in Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Nobody watches the UEFA Champions League like us. Stream every match live exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. 